Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Romans, the ninth chapter. Romans chapter 9, where I'd like to read from the 30th verse into chapter 10, verse 13. This morning we're going to be considering the Lordship of Jesus Christ and what exactly it means and why it is necessary that we profess and follow it. Romans chapter 9, beginning at the 30th verse. Hear now God's word. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who followed not after righteousness attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, following after a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by works. They stumbled at the stone of stumbling, even as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he that believeth on him shall not be put to shame. Brethren, my heart's desire and my supplication to God is for them that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law unto righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses writeth that the man that doeth the righteousness which is of the law shall live thereby. And the righteousness which is of faith saith thus, Say not in thy heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who shall descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Because if thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus as Lord, and shalt believe in thy heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, and is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And thus far the reading of God's word. It's very evident from what Paul tells us here in Romans chapters 9 and 10 that it is impossible to be saved without confessing the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm fully aware that that kind of statement, that kind of summary, will be controversial in many evangelical churches, in the circles of uh, many evangelical believers, because it is falsely thought that if we call for people to believe in the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that we are necessarily asking them to save themselves by their own merit, by their own efforts. That their obedience and submission to Jesus as Lord becomes the ground of salvation or the basis upon which God accounts people to be righteous and acceptable in his sight. But in our reading, the reason why we've gone all the way back to chapter 9 and, and read forward, 
it's rather evident that Paul did not look upon the Old Testament, which obviously required the Jews to keep the law of God. Paul did not look upon even the Old Testament's requirement of obedience to God's law as a way of works righteousness. Paul, it would be inconceivable to Paul that the call that we believe in Jesus as Lord is legalism, is the idea that our obedience is going to make us right before God. So I'd like to work through this text just so we can get that false line of reasoning out of our minds this morning. It's so common in the evangelical church that it really needs to be driven out of our thinking and then I'd like to consider more broadly, if we do confess Jesus as Lord, that we would be saved, what does the Lordship of Jesus Christ mean? What does it require according to the teaching of God's Word? So let's go back to Romans 9 and begin at verse 30 and see how Paul develops his, um, his understanding of the Old Testament in the way of salvation. Paul begins with a rhetorical opening question. He says, well, then what should we say about this? And I'd like to go all the way back to Romans 1 and tell you what he's been talking about, but I just have to assume you've read it sometime. Paul gets to chapter 9 and verse 30. He says, okay, now what? What about all this? What are we going to say? What conclusion shall we draw? And he says, well, we have to draw the conclusion that the Gentiles who did not follow after righteousness nevertheless attained to righteousness. The gospel has gone out to the Gentile world, and because of that, the Gentiles have attained unto righteousness. Now, what kind of righteousness is it? Did they attain unto self-righteousness? Did they attain unto the righteousness which comes by human merit through obedience to the law? Absolutely not. Paul says they attain to the righteousness of faith. They are accounted righteous in God's sight because they trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of their exercise of faith, they are now accounted as righteous in the sight of God. Are they truly righteous? No, they are sinners. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. Jew and Gentile alike break the law of God. None can be accounted right in the eyes of God, and yet God accounts the Gentiles to be righteous on the basis of faith. Now, you all know this, the doctrine of justification by faith. God declares men to be righteous. He accounts them as such in his sight, and he does so because of their faith. So Paul says, the Gentiles who uh, followed not after righteousness nevertheless attained to the righteousness of faith. And here's the dreadful thing. By contrast, he says, Israel. He says, but Israel following after, and he uses this expression, a law of righteousness did not arrive at the law. Now, what is the law of righteousness, or what is the righteous law of God? Well, of course, any, any Jew sitting in Paul's audience would be shamefaced not to be able to say it's the law of Moses. God gave his law through Moses, and it is perfectly righteous. Now, Israel tried to follow after the law of Moses, this law of righteousness. We've already heard that the Gentiles attained to the righteousness of faith. Now Paul turns and he says, Israel followed the righteousness of the Mosaic law. Okay. Now if we were to close our Bibles at this point, my guess is if you've had any training in evangelical churches and, and kind of you know, vanilla versions of Christianity in our day and age, 
If you were to close your Bible and not pay attention to the details, I think I could convince you that what Paul is setting up here is a contrast between the righteousness of faith and the righteousness of the Mosaic Law. Because that is so commonly presented in the evangelical world today that it's almost the background noise of all of our theological reasoning. Of course, there's a contrast between the righteousness of faith and the righteousness of the Mosaic Law. But now open your Bibles up again and let's pay attention. This may surprise you. Paul says, But Israel, following after a law of righteousness, that Mosaic Law, did not arrive at the law. They did not end up doing what the law called for them to do. They strove to attain the righteousness of the law, but they failed. In fact, he will say in a minute, they stumbled badly. Why did Israel fail? That's the question that he asked in verse 32. Israel was striving after the righteousness of the law. Why did Israel not arrive at the righteousness of the law? And Paul says, because. And then an interesting thing happens in the Greek, which um, I don't ordinarily want to go into with my audiences. I, I had a instructor once tell me that when you teach people, you know, you, you, you bring out the dinner to the table, but you don't take them back into the kitchen to show them how it's prepared, okay? But in this case, I think it'd be valuable. I want you to come into the kitchen for a minute, and I want you to look at the background in Greek. You say you don't know the Greek. Well, probably your English translation will follow a, a method of publication of the Bible that, uh, that many do. Words that are supplied to smooth out a translation will appear in italics. They are not, there's no words in the Greek corresponding to that, but it's supplied just so it's a smoother reading. And so maybe you can see in your own translation that when Paul says in verse 32, why is that? And then he says, because, you notice the italics, they sought it. Okay. The point is that in the Greek, Paul does not repeat his verb. He does not repeat his predicate at all. Why did Israel fall short of the law of righteousness? It wasn't because they were seeking it. And yet the common doctrine today is you shouldn't, try to, you shouldn't strive after the righteousness of the law. That is in contrast to the righteousness of faith. I don't want to go too fast to lose anybody here. What I'm saying is, Paul says the Gentiles attained to the righteousness of faith. And then he turns and says, Israel strove after the righteousness which is in the law. And they didn't find it. They didn't reach it. And why is that? Well, see, in just about any dispensational evangelical you know, preacher today jump and say, because they were seeking the wrong thing. They were seeking the righteousness of the law and they should have been seeking the righteousness of faith. But you see, that is impossible because Paul doesn't repeat that they were seeking the righteousness of faith. That isn't what was wrong. All Paul says is because, and then he gives an adverb. As he says, I take for granted they should be seeking the righteousness of the law. But how should they be seeking the righteousness of the law? The adverb tells us the way in which, the manner in which something is done. And so let's put this together. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who followed not after righteousness nevertheless attained to the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, following after a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. And why is that? Because not by faith, but as it were by works. Israel's problem was not that it strove after the righteousness of the law, but the way in which Israel did it. 
Israel should have been seeking the righteousness of the law by faith. Okay, now you've got to kind of shake the rocks around up here. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought the righteousness of the law and the righteousness of faith are pitted against each other. And you see, that's the fatal theological assumption that is hurting the Christian church in our day and age. The law of God never called for legalism. The law of God never encouraged people to earn merit in the eyes of God through obedience. The law of God, with all of its do's and don'ts, the law of God was always a law of faith, calling for men to trust in God and in their trust in God to live a faithful life of obedience before Him. Why? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by works. Paul is so sensitive to this idea that it might have been attained by works that he won't even say, no, they didn't seek it by faith, but by works. He said they sought it as it were by works. You know what he's getting at here? No one can attain it by works. What a ridiculous notion. And so he says it's as if, as if you could get it by works. They sought it in that way. As it were by works. They did not attain to the law. And as I told you a moment ago, they stumbled badly. And here's Paul's explanation of that. He says, They stumbled at the stone of stumbling. Even as is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes on him shall not be put to shame. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the stumbling stone to all those who want to approach God in their own merit and according to their own accomplishment. It says, Israel was not interested in the Savior that came to them. They stumbled when Jesus came. They stumbled over him. And of course they would, because Jesus is the very antithesis of self-righteousness, the very antithesis of saving yourself by obedience. Jesus comes and says, you need to believe in me. You need to have faith in me. You, you need to uh, trust the gracious provision of God for salvation. You can't save yourself. And what did Israel say to that? Forget it. We're not going to trust in you. We've got a pretty good system going here, and we think we're doing pretty well. God must be awfully proud of us. And so instead of entrusting in the Savior that was provided for righteousness, they killed him. They crucified him. He became a stone of stumbling to them. <clears throat> and in their stumbling, they could never attain to what Moses called for them to attain to. And a, a remarkable message. This is not something that comes out of the brilliance or lack thereof of Dr. Bonson's mind. Paul says it explicitly. Israel did not attain to the law because they stumbled over Christ. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and my supplication to God is for them that they may be saved. He says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. But he says, but it's not according to knowledge. They don't know what they're talking about. They're zealous for God, but they're ignorant of God's righteousness. Verse 3, for being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. You see, if you take that righteous law of Moses and turn it into a way of self-salvation, kind of like, you know, do-it-yourself kit to get into heaven, obey these laws and God's going to be real happy with you, 
He says, then you will not submit yourself to the righteousness of God at all. Because when you read the law of Moses, you have to see that it first and foremost pointed to Christ. We've been told for years now in the 20th century by this popular dispensational school of thought in America that the Mosaic law is the very opposite of faith righteousness, the very opposite of what we do when we come to Christ for salvation. And yet Paul says here clearly, the end of the law, and here he means end not in the sense of the terminus, that which cuts it off, but he means the end like the end of a race. It's the goal or purpose or aim to which you are running. He says the end of the law, the telos of the law, was always Christ. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law unto righteousness, to everyone who believes. Okay, so the first point I want you to get from this morning's lesson, if you've kind of gotten lost in the trees here, let's step back. The point is, the Old Testament law of Moses called for people to obey God's commandments, but it was never presented legalistically. That the Mosaic law, first and foremost, pointed to the Savior in whom God's people were to trust and then showed the lifestyle of trusting the lifestyle of faith, the lifestyle then of obeying and submitting to the lordship of this one who would be the Savior. And so if even the Mosaic law is not legalistic, certainly a call to believe in Christ as Lord for salvation cannot be deemed legalistic in our day either. Verse 5, For Moses writes that the man that does the righteousness which is of the law shall live thereby. But what is the righteousness of the law? Verse 6 continues, And the righteousness which is of faith says... Now, you've got a problem, don't we? If you were following when I read that, I'll bet you, if I were a betting man, I would bet you that the opening word in verse 6 in your translation is not and, but rather but. And when we read that, our tendency is to think, well, Paul again is putting a contrast between the righteousness of the law and then the righteousness which is of faith. And again, I'm not going to take you back to the kitchen on this one. I'm going to ask you to trust me. I can give you advanced studies that will prove this. The word that is there translated but ought to be translated and. In the Greek, it can go either way. And so you bring certain presuppositions to the text, and you say, oh, he's bringing a contrast out. I'll bet you I can make the text read much better and smoother Follow this. What Paul says is, Moses writes about the man who does the righteousness which is of the law, and, verse 6 says, the righteousness which is of faith says, say not in your heart who shall ascend into heaven, and so forth. So before I get into this ascending and descending, which confuses people, what Paul is saying is the righteousness of the law and the righteousness of faith say the same thing. Now what is the righteousness of faith saying? He says, and now he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 and 13. But the righteousness which is of faith says thus, Say not in thy heart who shall ascend into heaven, verse 7, or shall descend into the abyss. Paul says, well, then what does it say? Okay, the first point is the righteousness of faith doesn't call for superhuman feats. Ascending into heaven, descending into the abyss, don't ask that. The righteousness of faith doesn't ask you to do great deeds for God. Okay? This almost miraculous, wonder-working ability to ascend into heaven, descend into hell. Faith doesn't call for that. We're all going, oh yeah, that's right, because faith is against obedience, right? No. 
No. It's that, that faith doesn't call for you to do that, to gain favor before God. What does the righteousness of faith say? And in verse 8, Paul explains the righteousness of faith from quoting the Old Testament. Now, I don't know if you have this in your margin so you can see immediately my point. He quotes the very next verse of Deuteronomy 30. If you go back to verse 6, when I said that opening word should be and rather than but, if you leave the but in there so that you think Paul is trying to contrast the righteousness of faith with the righteousness of the law, and then Paul explains what the righteousness of faith is and quotes Deuteronomy 30, verse 8 goes on to show what exactly the righteousness of faith does call for, and then he quotes the next verse, He says, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. The word is very near you. What Moses is saying is, don't think you have to go off into heaven or down into the abyss to attain that word. It's not far away. It's right close to you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. Because if you shall confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and shall believe in thy heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says now in Isaiah's prophecy, whosoever believes on him shall not be put to shame. What's surprising about that is that you would have expected Paul to say whoever believes in Jesus as Savior. Isn't that the righteousness of the faith? We say Jesus is our Savior, but we don't worry about obedience and submission because that would be legalism like the Old Testament. But here Paul says the righteousness of faith says you believe on him as your Lord. And this is true for everybody. There's no distinction. Jew and Greek alike. If you would be saved, you must see Jesus as your Lord. Obviously, you've got to trust in him as your Savior. But what Paul says is, if he's not confessed as your Lord, he's not your Savior in the first place. Verse 12, there is no distinction, for the same is Lord of all, and rich unto all that call upon him. Well, that calling is the calling of faith. The righteousness that comes by trusting, we call on him for salvation, and he is the Lord of all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so we see secondly now in our lesson this morning that the Bible teaches us clearly that if Christ is not confessed as Lord, if we do not bend the knee and submit to him as the one that dominates our lives, who lords it over us, who guides us and directs us, If Christ is not Lord, then we don't have the righteousness of faith. The righteousness of faith requires the Lordship of Christ. Now, what does that mean? I think, for some people anyway, the lesson thus far might be rather surprising. They might not uh, have been prepared for this idea that I really do have to follow Christ as Lord in my life if I'm going to be saved. And remember the first point of the lesson? That isn't legalism. That's just the lifestyle of faith. When you trust in Christ, then you trust him to guide you and direct you as well. 
Jesus claimed to be the Lord and the Master. In John 13, verse 13, he said, You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. It was important to Jesus that people recognize that he was the Master, that he was the Lord. And Paul tells us in Romans 14, verse 9, that the very purpose for which Jesus died and was raised again was that he would be the Lord. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and was revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why did Jesus die and rise again? To be the Lord. Who did Jesus want to be recognized as? The Master and the Lord. And the resurrected Savior declared his authority over all things. In Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Therefore go and disciple the nations, teaching them to observe whatsoever I have commanded you. Jesus expects the nations to be his disciples, to follow him, to learn of him, and to obey everything that he has taught. Jesus asserts nothing less than universal lordship here after his resurrection. All authority is given to me in heaven. I know very few Christians, uh, true born-again Christians, who would deny that. Jesus has authority in heaven. He's the king of heaven. Then they watch the 6 o'clock news and they look around and they see all of the discouraging and sorrowful things in this world. They say, but he's certainly not Lord here on earth. That isn't what Jesus said. Jesus said, I have authority in heaven and on earth. And because I have that authority, then you go take the gospel to the nations so that they will be my disciples and teach them to observe whatsoever I have commanded you. If men would be saved, they must believe in this one who calls for that kind of obedience and following. In Acts 16.31, remember the story of the Philippian jailer who was about ready to take his own life. Paul and Silas called on him not to do so. And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. You know, you can almost imagine the dispensational seminary professor wanting to run back and say, Paul, 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 be careful now. That sounds like legalism. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. No, you want to say, believe on Jesus as the Savior. Ask Jesus into your heart and then you'll be saved. But Paul had no hesitation, no reservation to say that that Philippian jailer must believe in Jesus Christ as Lord if he would be saved. Romans 10.9, we read already this morning, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And you know the day is coming when every tongue will acknowledge that truth. That's exactly the goal of history toward which we are striving, toward which we are moving. The day is coming when every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul said in Philippians 2, verse 11. What does the Holy Spirit lead all men to say that trust in Christ? Now, I know that we have a debate in Christian circles over whether the charismatic gifts are still with us, whether there are tongues and prophecy and all the rest. And whatever your you know, particular conclusion is or judgment on that matter. We all have to admit that the Holy Spirit leads every believer to say one simple thing in common. 
What is it all Christians, charismatic, non-charismatic, Lutherans, Baptists, Presbyterians, whatever it may be, what is it all Christians say if they are born again by the Spirit of God? Look at 1 Corinthians 12:3. Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit unites all the church under that common confession. He is Lord. Indeed, love for the Lord Jesus is the final test before God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16:22, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. When all said and done, when history is wrapped up, when the day of judgment comes, you can simplify it. It comes down to this. Do you confess Jesus is Lord or do you not? Peter called him the Lord over all in Acts 10. John called him the Lord of Lords in Revelation 17. Paul and James both call him the Lord of Glory in 1 Corinthians 2 and James chapter 2. You remember Thomas? Thomas, when he encountered the resurrected Savior, called him my Lord and my God. You must confess Jesus as Lord. It is not optional. It is not the second step of your Christian life. It is not, you know, like the, uh, the place where you finally decide you're going to give in and, and, and go to the second, you know, major level of Christian experience from day one, from the first moment of your Christian experience, whether you set it outwardly or not. Implicitly, all Christians trusting in Christ for salvation say He is Lord. Matthew 6:24. You can't. No man. Pardon me. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. If Jesus is your Lord, if He is your Master, then He alone has that position. You can't follow Jesus and money. You can't follow Jesus and fame. You can't follow Jesus and want to be the bully on the block. You know, you, you, you can only live for one ultimate purpose. And Jesus says, that's got to be me. No other masters. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 to 6, Paul says, We know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and there be gods many, and lords many. But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him. There's only one Lord, and you cannot serve two masters. And if there's only one Lord, and no other master can detract from Him, if no other Lord can be brought into the picture, if no other influence or authority can govern in your life, then who governs your political affairs? Who governs your economic affairs? Who governs your educational affairs? Who governs your artistic affairs? Who governs your entertainment and your vocation and your family life as well as your personal devotions, evangelism, and prayer? It's the same Lord over all. Jesus is not Lord of the church and the family, evangelism and prayer. But then there's another Lord for the mountains and another Lord for the sea and another Lord for the marketplace and another Lord for the political sphere and another Lord for the arts and sciences. He's Lord. 
He alone is Lord, and therefore He is universally the Lord. Deuteronomy 6.4 made that the very central confession of faith of Old Testament Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. What is the first commandment of the Decalogue? God says, you shall have no other gods before me. When I was growing up, I didn't understand what that meant. Because I thought that said, there are a lot of gods, but none of them can be in line before me. And that's because, you know, when you're in elementary school, you get ready to line up after recess. That's the big deal. Who gets in line in what position? So God was, I understood him as a young person, as saying, no other God can stand in line before me. And then I began to read Hebrew. Well, not immediately. It was later. <laughs> The Hebrew says, you shall have no other gods in front of my face. God says, when I look out over the world, there are to be no gods, for I alone am the Lord. What does the Lord require? Deuteronomy 7, verses 9 to 11. Know, therefore, that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repayeth them that hate him to their face to destroy them. Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I command thee this day to do them. God's mercy requires you to obey his commandments. If he is the Lord, you must submit to his orders and his direction. And indeed, the Lord is a jealous God he doesn't permit syncretism with false religions. He doesn't allow us to, to take a little bit of the world and a little bit of this faith and then take his word and kind of mix it all together into a fruit salad of religion. He's a jealous God. Exodus 34, verses 13 to 15. But you shall destroy their altars, break their images, and cut down their groves. For thou shalt worship no other god for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they go whoring after their gods. Do you ever pray to God with that name? I don't know that it would be very easy to do. I don't really. But you know what he says? One of his names, you, know, you can call him Lord, you can call him Jehovah, you can also call him Jealous. That's his very name. He says, it's not just that I have that attribute, but that's my very essence. That's my name. I am so jealous, meaning I am, well, use another word that rhymes with that, zealous for this relationship, that there be loyalty and covenant faithfulness between us, that my very name is jealous. God doesn't permit us to have other lords. God doesn't allow any gods in, 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 before his very face. He says, my name is jealous. So you obey me. You don't follow other authorities. Nobody else can get in the way of my control and guidance in your life. And the Lord permits no deviation from his will. And he's not like an indulgent school teacher that, you know, first day of class writes all of the rules on the board. But, you know, throughout the year, the school teacher lets, you know, 
uh, us get away with this and we get away with that and so forth. As long as there's a kind of rough and ready order in the classroom, we won't be real strict. God's not like that. God's not like the school teacher that grades on a curve, you know. It's kind of like, well, you didn't get them all right. You deviated here and there, but I'm still going to kind of curve it out here. And that would be the A's and the B's and the C's and so forth. God permits no deviation from His will. You shall observe, this is Deuteronomy 5.32, You shall observe to do therefore as the Lord your God hath commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you. God doesn't want us wobbling around on the road, a little bit to the right and a little bit to the left. It's the straight and narrow. He says, you don't deviate from my commandments. Not only that, he says, you dare not tamper with my stipulations either. Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish anything from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Do you confess Jesus as Lord? And if you do, is this what it means to you? How many Christians do I know? And how often do I have to confess that I'm tempted this way myself? We think we can negotiate with Jesus. We go to prayer and we say, Jesus, I know this is what you want me to do, but it's so hard. And, and nobody around me believes it has to be done, so I'm not, it's going to be okay, isn't it, Jesus? And the answer is no. Not to the right hand or not to the left. If I am your Lord, you follow me. You follow me exclusively. You follow me comprehensively. You follow me consistently. And the ethic that God's people will live by will set them apart from the world then. If we really confess the righteousness of faith, which says Jesus is Lord, and in submitting to him for salvation, we say, Lord Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you take me. Whatever you tell me to do, I will do. If we truly confess the lordship of Jesus Christ, what I'm telling you is the church would no longer be blended in with the world or be condemned by the world that says, hey, they're no different than us anyway. The Lord expects his people to follow a distinctive ethic. Our problem is, so often we don't want to be distinctive because we think we'll stand out like a sore thumb. Boy, I don't want to be ridiculed. I don't want to be the guy who's different. I don't want to be the person who doesn't laugh at the off-color joke at the office. I don't want to be the guy who tells the full truth on his IRS forms. I hate the IRS, you know. And, we, and so we want to blend in with the world. We want the same entertainments. We want to talk the same way. We want to be accepted by the world. We don't want to be distinctive. And to the degree that we compromise like that, we are not following the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The Lord expects His people to follow a distinctive ethic. Listen to Leviticus 18, verses 2, 3, and 4. Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, I am the Lord your God. After the doings of the land of Egypt, wherein ye dwelt, shall you not do. And after the doings of the land of Canaan, whither I bring you, shall ye not do. Neither shall you walk in their ordinances. Ye shall do my judgments, and keep mine ordinances to walk therein. I am the Lord your God. That's part of the definition of God being the Lord. That we don't follow the lifestyle of the world. Egypt out of which we came, Canaan to which we are going. He says, you keep my judgments. 
You set yourself apart by the distinctiveness of your ethic, your lifestyle, your conduct, and your attitudes. And this ethic that sets those who confess that he is Lord apart from the world, this distinctive ethic is universally binding. I know that seems a little strange. And on one hand I'm saying this is what makes Christians different. Well, what makes Christians different is that they submit to that ethic and others don't. The fact is God requires all men to live by that ethic as well. A good example of this is in Leviticus 18, verses 24 to 30. I won't read it for you, but basically it says that the land of Canaan will vomit out its inhabitants, the Canaanites, because they had defiled themselves in violating the laws that God had delivered to Israel. Please remember that next time somebody tells you, oh, God gave those laws just for Israel. God only expected Israel to follow those laws. Why then did God make that the basis for throwing the Canaanites out of the land that Israel might come in? Obviously the Canaanites were guilty for breaking those laws too. And God held them accountable and judged them for it. And you know what? God went on to say to Israel, and if you break these laws, it will vomit you out too. Don't think I give you this land because you have some kind of ethnic privilege. The same law by which I judge the Gentiles will be used to judge you, Israel. You see the universal binding nature then of God's stipulation? God only has one standard of right and wrong. I've told the story before. Pardon me if you've heard it, but uh, it, it still humors me. When I was moving across the country from California to Mississippi a number of years ago, we stopped um, at a place in Texas. <coughs> um, to get some lunch, we went to a pizza parlor. And uh, I like to have a, a glass of beer with my pizza. Okay, so when we ordered the pizza, I said, would you please bring me whatever I ordered? And the girl looked at me and she said, well, no, I can't do that. I said, oh, why? And she said, well, because we're a dry county. Now, I'm from California, if you have to understand, you know. I, I said, excuse me? <laughs> she said, we're a dry county. I said, what do you mean you're a dry county? She said, well, we can't serve alcohol in this county. I said, why do you call that a dry county? She said, well, because if you'll go five blocks up the street here into the next county, it's a wet county and you can get a beer there. And that just, I mean, it didn't just tickle me. I mean, I thought it was funny, but I thought to myself, how asinine. <laughs> I mean, it's wrong to sell a beer here, but five blocks down the street, it's okay. Now I ask you, do you think God is that absurd? Do you think God gave a law to Israel and He said, don't do this and do this and so forth, but if you go over the county line, it's perfectly alright. In Israel, don't you dare kill the unborn. Don't you dare engage in you know, sexual perversion. But if you go over into Canaanite territory, well then I guess it's okay. Of course not. God's law was binding on all mankind. And that's why when Moses revealed the stipulations to Israel, in Deuteronomy the fourth chapter, he said, this law will be your wisdom in the sight of the nations, that will see all these statutes and say, what nation has such just and righteous commandments as all this that I've given you today? That's my paraphrase. The point is, Moses said, of course God's law is for everyone. But because he loves you, he gives it to you in written form. He calls on you to follow a distinctive ethic 
and to set the leadership in this world for bowing to his sovereignty and submitting to his lordship. One more text, and I promise you I'll be done here. Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 to 9. If you confess Jesus as Lord, that's the righteousness of faith, I remind you, not legalism. And if you would follow him as the one and only Lord, who requires a distinctive ethic of you, and rules over all mankind by the same standards, please add this one last point. The Lord in following the Lord entails obeying him comprehensively in every area of your life. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Sound familiar to you? Jesus quoted those words in the New Testament when a lawyer came to him tempting him and said, well, what's the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus quoted this. I, believe me, it doesn't humor me. It shocks me when I have Christian teachers, pastors, even instructors in Bible departments think that the New Testament ethic is one of love because Jesus said you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. But the Old Testament was an ethic of law. You see, it's the law of the Old Testament that Jesus quoted when he taught love. So don't pit these two against each other. You shall love the Lord your God. But how should you love the Lord your God? Pay attention to it. With all of your heart, out of the heart are the issues of life. With all of your soul, with all of your might, all of your effort. You need to give everything to following the Lord. He doesn't settle for discount discipleship. He doesn't have a bargain basement sale and say, okay, I'll let you be, you know, part of my people, but you only have to keep certain commandments. Everything in your life has got to be submitted to Him. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. How diligently shall we teach these commandments? You shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, and when you walk by the wayside, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Sound like obsession to you? It is. You talk about God's word to your children, and you instruct them to see the world as God sees the world, and as his word presents it to us. And you show them how to live obediently there, which is the lifestyle of faith. You show them what it means to follow the Lord. And you do this day in and day out, all day long. Whether you're sitting down at the table, whether you're walking outside, whether you're going to bed, whether you're getting up in the morning, you teach God's Word. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. On the forehead, write the law of God, so that you will think God's thoughts after him. You will see the world and evaluate it according to what God has taught so that you will be obedient in your thought life. And also write the law upon your hands. Why? So that what you do in this world, your conduct and behavior will be governed by His law. So all of your thoughts and your deeds are going to be controlled by God's law. And you shall write them on the post of your house. Your home shall be dominated by this. And get this, on the gates of your city as well. God's law governs the individual's life, his thought life, 
his conduct and external behavior. God's law dominates the individual's family and God's law dominates the corporate socio-political life of that individual as well. That's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? Jesus settles for nothing less than that. Those who don't follow Jesus and rebel against him are going to inevitably substitute a different law for his own. And so in Revelation 13, you will read about the beast. And the beast tells people that if they would engage in commercial transactions and and be politically acceptable, they must have his name, the number of his name, written. And where is it to be written? You remember? On the forehead and on the hand. What's supposed to be on the forehead and the hand? The law of God. The beast wants his authority substituted for God's authority. If you would confess Jesus as Lord, you need to have not only your own individual piety and walk with God, your prayer life, your evangelism, your worship controlled by him, but you must also have your family life controlled by him. You need to teach your children diligently all that he does. You need to have everything you do in this world, every thought you have, how you spend your money, how you vote, how you educate your children, what kind of entertainment you follow, what you think about the world scientifically, how you look at history. Everything about your life must be dominated by the Word of God. And beyond that, you must work for the day when the nations of this world will submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ too so that His law is written on the gates of our city rather than human wisdom that detracts from obedience to God. Well, that's really all I wanted to teach you today. That if you would be saved, Jesus must be your Lord. And if he is your Lord, he must lord it over your life everywhere and all the time in every area of your human endeavor. Let's pray. We come to you, Lord Jesus, because having heard what your word so clearly teaches us, we have to confess that we have failed miserably. All of us have. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have transgressed your commandments. And yet we come to you realizing that our standing before you, praise God, does not depend upon our attainments, does not depend upon what we have accomplished, but our standing is simply and solely based upon your righteousness. We do trust you, Lord Jesus, as our Savior. In our trusting you, we ask that your spirit would make us over again, that your spirit would strengthen us to live a more faithful life of trust and obedience. Do help us to follow you more consistently, to confess your name, to confess your lordship, and to do so with credibility as we live before the world, before our church, before our families. Lord Jesus, help us to see that we need to be people of the word, that if we would truly be your disciples, we must abide in your word, and then we can be set free. Help us to study the scriptures, and to study them completely, to be students of the Bible from cover to cover. Help us to implement what we find there. Help us to reform our own lives in the power of your gracious spirit. Help us to reform our families. Help us to reform the places where we work, or where we study. Help us to reform the world in which we live. We do ask, Lord Jesus, that you would accomplish this in us. Not that we would boast, 
not that we would have anything to offer to you as a basis of merit that would be accepted. We ask that you would do this simply and solely, that you would be honored and glorified, that we would bow the knee and the heart to you as Lord, and that you would hasten the day in which the nations of this world confess the same thing. Truly, you are the Lord. For we pray in your blessed name. Amen.